Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor of physical therapy discusses how physical therapy can help alleviate some of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. It's a life-changing diagnosis for most people. You know, for some people they might be somewhat relieved to know it's not something that they'll die from, it's just something they'll have to live with and it'll make life harder. A representative from Hope for Bereaved will talk about how to get through the holiday season if you're grieving. There's a whole gamut of different feelings and emotions that we go through. But what I tell people when they come into Hope is that you may not go through every single one of them, but we guarantee that you will go through several of them. And a doctor of family and integrative medicine discusses wellness and the prevention of burnout. All that, along with a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll discuss grief and the holiday season. Then we'll talk with a family doctor who specializes in integrative medicine about what wellness means. But first, a doctor of physical therapy explains how some of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease can be alleviated through physical therapy. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're talking about what living with Parkinson's disease is like with a doctor of physical therapy. Julie Lombardi from the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate is here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Lombardi. Hi, thank you. Let's begin with a description of what Parkinson's disease is. Do we know what causes it? So the cause is not certain. There are certain um, pesticides they have found that might increase your risk for developing Parkinson's along with likely a genetic um, increased risk. Um, so it's a combination of probably environmental plus genetics being triggered by the environment. Um, that's a hot topic of study right now. Um, a lot of researchers are looking at the microbiome as well, so looking at gut bacteria to see if that is um, potentially linked to an increased risk of Parkinson's or causing at least some of the Parkinson's diseases, um, uh, possibly starting in the gut and traveling up one of the nerves that goes to our brains. Because it's a nervous um, system disease, Yes, right? it's a central nervous system disease. But again, we're also finding it may start in the gut for at least some of the diseases. And is it primarily um, in older people? Um, it is, yep. It is something that your risk of getting it develops um, is higher with age. So it increases with age. But you can develop it younger. There's a young onset as well. And that's, we, people may be familiar with Michael J. Fox. Exactly, yeah. the young, younger yep. onset. Now, um, when I think of Parkinson's disease, I, I think of tremor, mm -hmm. but there's some other symptoms that go along with it, right? right? Yeah, you don't have to have a tremor to have um, Parkinson's disease, um, even the idiopathic Parkinson's disease that people mostly think of. Um, there are cardinal signs. So there's bradykinesia, which means a slowness of movement, um, rigidity, um, postural instability, which is a difficulty with balance, and tremor. Um, if you have two of the either tremor, slowness of movement, or rigidity, um, you could be classified with Parkinson's disease. So you don't have to have that tremor. 
Now, how is Parkinson's disease diagnosed then? So it's usually a clinical diagnosis. Uh, it often will be a family member that notices maybe the person isn't uh, moving quite as fast anymore. They can't keep up when they're walking. Um, people may go to the doctor because of their tremor, if they have tremor, um, or they might just go and say, you know, I'm just not feeling well, I'm not feeling like myself anymore. Um, and so that's why it can take a while to actually come to the diagnosis. Um, sometimes you're being shifted around from doctor to doctor before really finding that diagnosis, especially if you don't have that obvious tremor. And so there's not a simple test to say yes or no, you have it. Not really. So there's the clinical diagnosis. That's usually what's um, how it's determined. Um, there is a scan that sometimes will be done, um, but that's more if, let's say, somebody has a tremor and they're trying to figure out if it's like an essential tremor versus um, a Parkinson's tremor. So they may go in for a scan to see um, whether or not that there is that dopamine loss in the brain. Um, that would help maybe to confirm the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, but it, there are other... Parkinsonisms, and that would not differentiate between other Parkinsonisms versus Parkinson's disease. You use the term essential tremor. What What is that? So essential tremor is not the resting tremor that you typically see in Parkinson's disease. It's also sometimes heard of as benign tremor or familial tremor. So it's a different type of tremor that has nothing to do with Parkinson's disease. So if a person sees their doctor and their doctor diagnosis them with Parkinson's, um, what next? What sort of information do they get and where do they go from there? So I think that first visit for a lot of patients is very overwhelming. It's a um, life-changing diagnosis for most people. You know, for some people they might be somewhat relieved to know, um, you know, I have a diagnosis, I finally figured out what all of these symptoms are, um, but now what? And I think it can be scary because they might have a family member or relative that maybe has progressed through to some of the later stages of Parkinson's and that looks really hard to live with. Um, and for some people, there's somewhat of a relief to know that it's not something that they'll die from. It's just something they'll have to live with and it'll make life harder. Um, so on that visit, they're given a lot of information, um, sometimes given the option to start a medication. And um, as a physical therapist, we hope that they're also given a referral to PT. So there is some medication that helps. Yeah, so it doesn't slow the disease down at all, but it can help with the symptoms. There are various medications. A common one, the most common one that people go on is something card called um, Cinemats, Carbidopa, Levodopa. Okay. And then physical therapy. What, what does physical therapy offer? So with physical therapy, um, what we're finding now is that exercise actually may slow down the disease process and help to perfect, uh, protect the nerve cells. Um, so... Doctors often tell their patients to exercise, but patients sometimes feel lost. They don't know how to exercise, and we really would like to see them in PT because we can kind of guide them on what is the best exercise to be doing to help slow down your disease process and to individually help patients with what they're having difficulty with in their functional lives. For some people, it might be, you know, if they're diagnosed early enough, they may not know that they're having difficulty with anything, but then maybe we get them moving backwards quickly and they almost fall. And that might be something they didn't realize that their balance was starting to be impaired. Um, so we can kind of help them target where they're having difficulty with their movement and try to develop a comprehensive program to target their problems. So if, if part of the disease process is a slowing down or a slowness of mm -hmm. movement and, a, and difficulty with balance, I mean, those things are 
challenging on their own. How mm-hmm. do you mix that with what sort of exercise would help with yeah. those? Yeah, so one of the things we do is actually forced exercise. Um, there's been research in tandem cycling. So um, sometimes what I'll do with a patient is get them to walk at their self-selected pace. And I might take out my metronome and figure out what that pace is. And then I'll get them to go maybe 10% faster than that by speeding up the metronome and telling them to keep up with that pace or get on the treadmill and force them to go faster. Um, So doing that can actually help people with their balance and to walk better. Um, So that's just one of the things we might do is to get them to move faster. There's also this um, sense loss of the ability to sense the size of the movement and the um, speed of their movement. And I use this example with patients all the time that um, it's kind of like their their thermostat is off. So they might want their movement to be a certain size and they think that they're moving at that size. But in order to actually get their movement there, they have to kind of increase the work of their furnace, their body, to improve their movement. So it's as if they wanted, they walk into the room and they want their temperature to be 68, and they set their thermostat at 68, but they take out a thermometer and it's 66 degrees in the room. So if you can't fix the thermostat, you have to make the furnace work harder. And so that's kind of what we do is try to teach people to sense when they're moving smaller and feel what it feels like to move bigger again and how to use more effort to do that. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking about Parkinson's disease with Julie Lombardi, a doctor of physical therapy at Upstate. I've heard that there are five stages of Parkinson's disease. Can you talk to me about how the symptoms change as the disease progresses? Sure. So that's um, the hone and yard staging. And um, so hone and yard one would be um, just on one side, and then it progresses to uh, both sides, and then eventually progressing to maybe needing an assistive device, or then stage five is like bedridden. Now, I think one of the biggest things that I try to do with patients is to reassure them that they don't have to get to stage five. Not everyone moves through all five stages. So um, that can be a huge relief for people to hear that, okay, I might not end up at stage five, and what I need to do about it is to exercise. And stay active. Yeah, and that's how they can try to prevent progressing as quickly or even through all of the stages. Are there, um, we've talked a lot about the motor kind of symptoms. Mm -hmm. Are there non-motor symptoms that come along with this? Yeah, and sometimes those can be the... um, those will show up before the motor um, symptoms. So a lot of that might be constipation. Um, It could be a loss of sense of smell, Um, REM sleep disorder. So not uh, patients will maybe be acting out violent dreams in their sleep. Um, There's sometimes it's a lack of sweating. Uh, Maybe your heart rate doesn't respond well to exercise. A big one is something called orthostatic hypotension. So when they change positions from lying down to sitting, sitting to standing, the blood pressure can drop and they'll feel a lot of dizziness from that. Um, So patients might be experiencing some of those symptoms way before they experience their motor symptoms. And again, once they get to the doctor and realize, oh, this is Parkinson's disease, now it all fits together. Um, Incontinence is one of those. So like once the picture kind of fits all of those symptoms together, there might, for some people, maybe some relief. For others, definitely, you know, they're not relieved to hear they have Parkinson's disease. But um, that, those are some of the premotor signs. Uh, What about, can you tell me what uh, people would expect at their first visit to the physical therapist? 
Sure. So on their first visit, some people are nervous. Maybe they've never done physical therapy before, so they don't really know what to expect. Um, we first start with just an interview of the patient, um, finding out what they're having difficulty with, um, finding out what the progression of their disease has been like, how medication has helped, um, and then move into examination. So um, I'll check blood pressure. I'll see how their limbs are moving, um, coordination, and moving into how is their balance, how is their walking. So we have certain tests that we look at. Um, also looking at cognition a little bit, not as much as like a speech therapist does, but trying to get like a baseline of what is their cognition like. Because often with this disease, eventually there is some decline in that, and that can affect balance as well. Um, so we get these baseline measurements and then discuss what will physical therapy involve. And just to kind of give people some relief is to know what to expect down the road now. So do you recommend that the patient bring a loved one with them to the uh, appointments? I, I think it's very helpful when they do. They certainly don't have to. But um, again, sometimes the patient themselves, they don't feel how slow they're moving with certain tasks or that they're having difficulty with certain things. And that's where the family member can chime in and give a little more input on some of those things. So what sorts of things would you work on with a person during a session after the first visit? Um, yeah. What sorts of things do you see needing so depending on what, you know, there are certain therapies that we do um, that have a protocol attached to them and then others that other times um, we won't use a protocol. But in general, um, doing some exercises to help to decrease some of the stiffness that people feel along with that rigidity is a sensation of stiffness. So um, that can happen often in um, the trunks, in the trunk, the arms, the neck. So we're working on rotation of the trunk, trying to get the spine to move a little bit better. Um, Working on getting their movements to be more exaggerated, um, especially with a lot of kind of stomping. I tell my patients to stomp a lot. That way they're picking up their feet higher and moving them faster into another position so that when they start to feel like they're falling, they can move faster and catch themselves. Um, as the sessions progress, I start to challenge cognition a little bit more. So it might be, we're often trying to do two things at once, um, because that becomes a challenge. So it's either walking and talking, um, walking and doing, uh, mental arithmetic. Um, maybe we're looking around the room and doing some tasks of, um, I use some, some of these Stroop tasks. So I'll give them a colored word and it might say green, but it's written in red. And so they have to tell me the color they see or something like that. So just different activities to get people to have to think and keep their movements, um, how we're trying to make them. Well, uh, what happens after a person completes all of their physical therapy visits? Because there's a, a certain number that they come to, right? Right. So um, if they're doing a certain, one of the protocols we use is 16 visits they come to. For other patients, it's um, probably around a couple of months until um, we kind of maximize their progress. Um, and then this therapy never ends for patients. We take a break from it. Um, so I like to have people decide on what type of a community exercise program they may get involved with um, during their time off from therapy. Um, so we discuss the different options in the community. What are some of those options in the central New York or Syracuse area? So Syracuse um, has some great options now. Um, there's been a lot that has come about over the past probably 10 years. Um, there's a few different dance classes um, that are designed for people with Parkinson's. Um, there's rock steady boxing that is designed for people with Parkinson's and it's a non-contact boxing program um, as well as um, a a nonprofit right now called Empower Parkinson's that houses rock study boxing, tai chi, yoga, 
chorus lessons, nutrition, um, support groups. So there's a lot out there in the community for specifically for people with Parkinson's disease. And I understand you're a, a boxing coach. So I'm certified in rock study boxing. I don't actually coach now. I used to be one of the coaches for one of the um, Syracuse groups. And um, it is a lot of fun. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Julie Lombardi from the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, coping with grief during the holidays. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The holiday season isn't such a happy time of year for people who are grieving. Here with me to discuss how to cope with the holidays is Walt Stein from the community organization Hope for Bereaved. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Walt. Thank you, Amber, for having me. Now, I know that Hope for Bereaved offers a class every year called Coping with the Holidays. This year, it takes place Uh, Monday, tomorrow, December 9th at 6.30 p.m. at your headquarters, 4500 Onondaga Boulevard, across from West Hill High School. Can you tell us about this class? Who is it for? The class is for anybody who's going through that first holiday season after the death of a loved one. You know, as you had mentioned, that first holiday season could be the hardest one to go through because we're hurting, we're grieving, and we're just missing them and it brings about a lot of sorrow and hurt. And this class is to help people to understand that the holiday season, we can get through it. And we get offer suggestions and tidbits of how to get through that holiday. And we also offer suggestions for those who are trying to help the bereaved, help them to help the bereaved to get through the holiday. Now, what age um, children might be involved in this? As far as children, we have a program that we're going to do with the youth that's on us in another room, and it's going to be them making an ornament in memory of their loved one. Okay. And when they're in that room and they're making the ornament, the people who are working with the children will talk about grief, and they'll talk about that holiday and how they can get through the holiday. You know, telling them that it might be a little painful. You know, there may be times where memories will come up, but you will get through, and keeping in mind that you're, even though your loved one may not be here physically, but they're here within your heart at the holiday. Well, let me ask you about grief in general. What, what's the definition of grief? Grief is the reaction to a death. I had recently looked into some research about the meaning between bereaved and grief. And bereaved is the process we go through when we grieve. Grieving is the reaction to the death. And when we grieve, it could be a range of emotions from anger to rage to fatigue, depression, anxiety. There's a whole gamut of different feelings and emotions that we go through. But what I tell people when they come into hope is that you may not go through every single one of them, but we guarantee that you will go through several of them. So you mentioned emotions, but there's probably some physical manifestations as well, right? Yes. If we don't do, If we don't handle our grief in a proper way, a lot of times we end up with headaches, fatigue, 
uh, stomach problems, lack of sleep. So we may, some people find that they can't get out of bed in the morning. Well, they want to do a sleep. Others feel like they can't sleep because the emotions are so strong or their anxiety level may be too high where they can't relax and allow themselves to sleep. How, how long does grief last normally? It all depends on the person and, you know, our ability to work through it. But what we tell people is grief is a process. There is no timeline. But the thing that we have to do is we have to acknowledge the grief. We have to talk about it. And if we're the person, if we're someone who is helping the person who is bereaved and grieving, we have to keep our expectations low on that person. Don't expect that person to jump up and do things like they normally would. We have to accept the fact that it may take them longer to do things. They may not be able to do it right now. And what we need to do is to be patient with them. And the most important thing that we can do for them is just to listen. If they tell us the same story five times, that's okay. Let them tell it because sometimes they have to tell it several times in order to get through it. Because sometimes it's a shock and we're, we're still in disbelief that the person died. If it was a sudden death, like a car accident, maybe a drug overdose or a massive heart attack. Sometimes we got to talk about it several times so it becomes, it takes it out of being a shock to reality. So I know that grief is a process that may take a different amount of time for different people. Does it, if you feel like you've processed things, do you see that it could resurrect around the holiday time? Yes. And sometimes we even tell people, not just around the holiday, but even if there's another death, sometimes the grief from the previous death will come back up. The emotions come back up. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I have found is that when if we process the grief in a healthy way, when those feelings do come up again, they don't come up as strong. And we find that we're able to handle them because we dealt with it. We know that this is not a permanent thing. It's only temporary. So let's talk about what advice you offer for getting through the holiday time. If you are the person who is grieving at the holiday season, one of the things, as I mentioned a little while ago, is keep our expectations down. Don't expect ourselves to get out there and get everything done, do all the shopping, cook the dinner, all that stuff, because that puts more anxiety on top of what we're already feeling. The most important thing we can do is to slow down. And if we are somebody who maybe has a routine every year, we went to midnight mass or we went to synagogue for Hanukkah, whatever the holiday might be that we're celebrating, change it up. Go to a different service. Go to a different church or synagogue for that service because you're putting yourself in a whole different environment and the memories won't be as strong as going to the, to, to the thing that you've done year after year. Because you're right. I mean, there's a lot of traditions tied up mm-hmm. with all the holidays. And if you're used to doing them with a certain person who's no longer there, it's likely to be a sad Situation. It is painful because, you know, as you're sitting there, you're imagining them sitting next to you, and but they're not there, and, you, and you're missing them. And this way, if you go somewhere else, it's a whole different environment, it's, and it helps to ease that feeling of missing. 
This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking about grief in the holidays with Walt Stein from Hope for Bereaved. I've heard about some people who will set the table for the meal and leave an empty seat for the person who's missing. Do you recommend that or not? We do. We do recommend that. Another thing that was told to me when I went to Hope was to light a candle at the table and tell people this candle represents my loved one and you can mention her name and sit in the middle of the table. That makes them present at your table. It makes you feel like they're a part of your celebration. Good idea. I've also read that after a death, material things can seem a lot less meaningful. What do you recommend regarding gift giving? Well, as far as giving gifts to other people? Sure. Well, that first year while we're grieving, you can keep it very small, the gift. It doesn't have to be anything big. Or you can even do a gift certificate and just say, you know, it's been a rough year this year and I just was not up to it and give them a gift certificate. Keep it simple. What about uh, ways to avoid the holidays entirely? Do you see people who just, Christmas is too much, I, I can't do it, I've got to get away? That's very common. It is? Yes. We have a lot of people that will come that will take a trip to Disney World. They'll go to maybe Miami or somewhere other than Syracuse or whatever town they're living in, they get away from it. Uh, there was a young woman that came several years back who had two, had three children, and when Christmas time came, she packed up and took them to Disney World for Christmas to get away from the environment and put the children in a whole different set of, a whole different situation. So you're basically sort of avoiding, avoiding. D- does that work to avoid situations that might make you sad? I wouldn't say it's avoiding. I think what it is, it's t- it's knowing that we can't be there, that it's too painful to be there. So we put ourselves in another environment to help to ease the pain okay, and to make it easier for us to cope with the time of the year. Now, as far as advice for people who want to help someone who's grieving, I know that you said, you know, to, to lower expectations, don't expect that person to do everything that they did the previous years. Mm-hmm. Are there other tangible things that a person can do if they know someone has lost someone this year and the holidays are coming up? You can offer to have them come to your home for dinner and say, I know that maybe you may not be, be able to come, but I want you to know that you're welcome to come here. You can even maybe go out and purchase a dinner for them and prepare it and take it to them to help them. Uh, Another thing is that if you invite somebody for dinner, make sure that they're that if they come in and they say, okay, I will come, but I can't guarantee that I'll stay the whole time, accept that. Accept the fact that they're doing the best they can at this time. And as we said, keep the expectations down. That's what's really critical. Don't put a lot, a lot of expectations on them because it only makes it harder for them. At what point would you say that a person who is grieving might need professional help? What I tell people is that they come in and we find that their number one, maybe their appetite has changed drastically and they can't eat, or they might be suffering migraines or headaches. And if we're finding that these symptoms continue 
or they find that they can't sleep and it goes on for a long period of time, seek professional help. When you start to see symptoms of physical change and ailments that are like uncommon, get help. It's time to, okay. Well, it occurs to me that some of our listeners may not be familiar with Hope for Bereaved. Can you tell us what this community organization stands for and what it's... Hope for Bereaved, our main mission is to help those who are grieving the death of a loved one. Hope for Bereaved was started in 1978, one year after Tree daughter Mary was killed in a car accident. And Tree said that first year she would have done anything to be in a room with people who were going through what she was going through. And in Christmas in 1978, she was working for Family Life through the Catholic Diocese of Syracuse and approached her boss, Father Joe Phillips, and said, I'd like to do a workshop for grieving parents at the holiday. And he agreed to it. They had no clue how it was going to turn out. And when that workshop came, that room was packed. And they did exactly what we do today in our workshop, offer suggestions, have speakers, and one was all over, people come up, came up to her and said, when can we meet again? And that was the start of Hope for Bereaved. And in 1991, we moved away from the diocese, became independent, and we're going into our 40, 41st year of helping the bereaved. So is this open to anyone in Syracuse, Onondaga County? Anyone within Onondaga County or any of the surrounding counties. We have okay. people come from Cortland County, Cayuga, Oneida, Oswego. They come from all over. Now, do you have one uh, support group for everyone, or do you have different? We have a variety of support groups. We have two support groups a month for people who lost a loved one to drug overdose, two for suicide. We have one for parents who lost a baby at birth, another one for bereaved parents, for people who got to hold their children and to love their children for a period of time. And then we have uh, our general group, which, which is for anyone who has suffered the death of a loved one. We have three widow widower groups, one for young widow widowers who are like in their 20s and 30s with young children at home. We have what we call our young at heart. They're like in their late 40s, 50s, and 60s. And then we have a senior group. And we have two groups that meet up in Oswego County oh, also. Okay. Uh, are any of these groups appropriate for children? We do have youth programs. And what we ask people to do is call ahead if you had children that you want to bring so that we know that they're coming and we can set up and have a program ready for them when they come. Now, do these groups meet monthly, weekly? All groups, except for the drug overdose and a suicide meet. We, have, we meet on a monthly basis, but those two groups meet twice a month. Okay. Because they're so big. And what's the cost for attending the groups? There is no cost for our services at Hope. Our support group, our one-on-one counseling, and our newsletter is free of charge to the bereaved. And that's one of the things I want to touch on, too, that if you're finding it really hard this season to cope with the holiday that's coming up, give us a call. Come in. We're, we're, we have appointments available. We'd be happy to sit and talk with them and, you know, offer them the suggestions, what they need. Sometimes we need to do one-on-one because sometimes we can't handle the group. It's too, our grief is too strong, and when we're sitting in a group, we find that it's overpowering. I know your website also has some resources available for people. That is that... correct. We have our Hope Book that is now sold throughout the world. And uh, it's filled with a lot of different articles written by psychologists, therapists, counselors, and people who have actually gone through the grief process themselves. And they share what it was like for them and how they got through it. 
Very useful information. Thank you to Walt Stein from Hope for Bereaved. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what does wellness mean? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Patients and their medical providers have at least one thing in common. They are human. Lots of advice about wellness can benefit patients, but also doctors and other healthcare providers. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about wellness is Dr. Susan Levinson. She's an assistant professor of family medicine and integrative medicine at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Levinson. Thank you, Amber. Great to be here. Let me start by understanding your background. Your specialty is family medicine. How did you become involved in integrative medicine? Um, Well, I suppose I've had an interest in lots of ways that um, health can be uh, kind of fostered. And my background's also in studio art, which I was a major at, I majored in, in undergrad. And so um, during residency, I loved residency. I loved the whole, whole biopsychosocial sort of holistic approach to care, but I really was looking for something more and gravitated a lot towards um, trying to learn more about nutrition, uh, meditation, stress management, and different ways that people could creatively engage with their health. And so I sought out um, a fellowship, which I did at University of Michigan following residency and uh, loved it. It was an amazing experience. So when we say integrative medicine, what does that encompass? You mentioned nutrition, but what else is part of integrative medicine? Great. Thanks for asking. So integrative medicine is really a very broad look at medicine. It kind of encompasses any type of uh, modality that people may utilize to enhance their health or to optimize their health. So really my stance is I'm curious about what people do. I'm open and frankly very interested in what people do outside of conventional medicine in order to enhance their health. So things like nutrition, but then there's also whole health systems such as traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, um, something like functional medicine, which really looks at some of the underpinnings um, in, in people's health. So it's very multimodal. Now, the fact you uh, completed a fellowship on integrative medicine, that kind of indicates to me that um, this is accepted more by the medical community than it once was. Absolutely. It's now an official fellowship, and there's um, a, a board certification that started in 2014, including um, board exam, there's a verbal exam, um, on top of a required fellowship in order to be able to provide this type of care. Do you think patients and doctors see one another as humans with similarities, or do you think they see each other as kind of different? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think that while medicine is a very humanistic field at the heart of it, there's something that happens, I think, during the training. Maybe it's the um, endeavor to become more objective that I think – uh, create some detachment and maybe can make some of that basic humanity um, 
a little bit less accessible for practitioners. And then I think that patients sometimes use, um, look at doctors sometimes not as people as well. I think there's lots of examples from movies and televisions of what doctors are, and they're not necessarily your neighbor or your family member. Well, literally, your life may be in their hands, depending, you know, for whatever you're coming there for, right? They're Kind of. I mean, I, I, I'm very much, part of my interest is very much about people being empowered in their health and being very much partners in their health. And so I think that's one of the main kind of misunderstandings is I think that people think that doctors are sort of in control and that's sort of a relatively, um, I think that's some of the thoughts that some of the philosophical thoughts around medicine maybe of the past couple decades, but I think more contemporary people really are more involved and more active in their health. But at the same time, doctors are responsible, legally responsible in ways that are different than other interactions. Do you think it's easier in like a primary care specialty to have this connection with a patient than with a highly specialized field? Well, one of the things that's interesting about integrative medicine is the more that I exist in this field, the more that I realize that these are just foundational aspects of health and they really cross the barriers between different disciplines. I think that the same nutritional foundations and the same stress management approaches and the same need to know what supplements and what other type of input people are having in their healthcare really crosses all fields. Primary care, cardiology, rheumatology, surgeons, everybody really should be having this more expanded knowledge of what people are doing. But primary care is intrinsically very, very holistic, especially family medicine, because one of the main facets is thinking about people within the context of their entire life. So an ideal family medicine situation is where you're treating a patient, their parent, their child, maybe extended family. And so you're having this very holistic view just at baseline. So is our modern... American healthcare system set up to promote the well-being of patients and, and the providers? No. No. No, it's very much set up to uh it's a fee for service model and so we are incentivized as healthcare providers to see as many people in a short period of time as is required to achieve certain benchmarks. Um that does not take into account outcomes such as people becoming healthier, um, getting fewer diagnoses if they're able to overcome diagnoses through health measures. Um, We don't have particular incentive models to talk about nutrition or stress management, uh, whereas we uh, procedures are very uh, well reimbursed financially. Short visits are also very encouraged. And those typically end up more in a prescription, a pharmaceutical being prescribed rather than a counseling session. And the reason that that's important is that I just heard this statistic at a conference I was at about two weeks ago, 85% of our chronic health um, problems are lifestyle. 85%. If you have a pie an apple pie of all your health, of your whole health problem in front of you, 
15% of that is the interventional stuff that we do. 85% is what you do in the time outside of the doctor's office. Wow. I think it's amazing. And I really think about how interesting it is that when somebody comes into your office and you're having a session with them, it's maybe 25 minutes or so. My goal in that time is that during this confidential, brief, honest interaction, somebody will leave that visit and that 25 minutes will hopefully have an effect on how somebody lives their life over the next weeks or months. Because that time in between the visits is really where it happens. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Susan Levinson. She's an assistant professor of family medicine at Upstate, and she also specializes in integrative medicine. Now, one of your roles at Upstate um, is that you're involved with physician or provider wellness, right? Tell, tell me about what's in place to kind of keep providers healthy. Well, this has become more and more of a hot topic over the past couple of years. I definitely noticed during my training that uh, the wellness of trainees wasn't particularly um, encouraged. I always felt it was a strange thing when you might be just as sick feeling as the person you were admitting to the hospital. And um, this kind of goes back to your first question, are doctors and patients different? Well, during my time in fellowship and thereafter, I've been really interested in physician well-being because at the end of the day, we're all human beings. And um, the things that help doctors to be more well, help them do a better job with their patients to be well. So patients should want their doctor to be as healthy as Absolutely. they can be. Absolutely. Uh, you really want your doctors to be able to walk the walk as well. It doesn't make any sense for a doctor to give a recommendation for a um, some health-related activity or lifestyle activity if they really don't understand what's involved in that. Well, tell me what um, sorts of things are being done. Yeah, so we've been, um, it's actually become, uh, interestingly and wonderfully, it's become um, one of uh, the main requirements for residency training to have an aspect of physician wellness. So I was so excited to be able to have a part in that. Um, what we've been doing with our residents is every week during uh, their education, education session, we set aside time specifically for wellness. Uh, some of the activities we've done, we've gone to the Everson uh, during orientation where we had a visual tool and we, tour and we had a, um, a creative um, activities uh, experience around wellness. Um, we've had meditation experiences. We have a local therapist, Melissa Carmen, who comes in uh, twice a month and um, she does not evaluate the residents. So she's able to have really frank and honest discussions confidentially with the group. And that social support is absolutely key. So it sounds preventive. Like you're trying to not, you know, the, you don't want people to develop burnout or. That's the goal. That's the goal. The goal is uh, not just the absence of illness, but actually the promotion of well-being. Because I really, I hope, you know, what we're doing in our residency, our residency is brand new. We just started in July. And um, really the faculty, I believe, 
um, we're making the programs that we wish that we could have gone to. So we're really trying to make something different for the future. So do you talk about um, burnout in terms of like what symptoms to be on the lookout for? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, some of the symptoms uh, to pay attention to, the biggest one I think is just a loss of meaning in work. That you're just of, going to a job with no passion or no feeling. No purpose. Yeah. And um, to me, one of the things I often say to my patients is, well, while suffering, which is, um, suffering is this experience where you have a loss of your identity, right? And while that's a part of any, um, any kind of potentially transformative process, suffering that's senseless is one that has no meaning. And so to me, that's what burnout is. It's a purposeless experience to working in the healthcare. And the reason that I think that's so heartbreaking is uh, healthcare uh, really goes to the heart of humanity, which is um, the expression of everybody's individual story. And so you're in a potentially amazing situation to be able to hear people's stories and their transformations to um, better lives, potentially. And um, if that loses its meaning, then I think that's... Um, that's a huge, that's a huge loss for everybody. So what do you advise for someone who's having symptoms like that, where they're not, they're not feeling like they're okay? Um, well, uh, one of the things is to, um, take a look at, you know, you got to understand what's going on in your day. You know, what are the underpinnings, underpinnings that's going on? Is this new? Is this, you know, is it because of a specific event or is this something that's been dragging on? Might you need to um, take a real hard look at um, the balance of your work and life? Is it a stress-related thing? Um, are there other, um, are there other uh, supports that might be a benefit? Maybe taking some time for mental health. Uh, hygiene, talking to a therapist. Um, maybe it's about restructuring your priorities. But I think ultimately, you know, you were talking about whether our system supports the well-being of patients in health, and I really think it doesn't. So um, one of the things that um, we all need to do is to um, really create a system that uh, works for the benefit of the people who are in it, both patients and doctors, and not just focus on who's paying for it, but how this system works and how what are our objectives. So changing from the focus of disease to wellness Absolutely. or health as opposed to. Now, health maintenance organizations as a concept, they were supposed to do that. They're, and they, they don't really seem to be doing that, though. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's because they continue to have the same focus. The payer system, the yeah, way it's set up. Yeah, they haven't, you know, I mean, there are some objective measures that are looked at, like have you screened for chlamydia or certain screening tests that we need to make sure that we have done? Have you offered the flu vaccine? These types of things are all considered kind of quality measures, but they don't look at other quality measures. Um, larger... Um, uh, larger, more holistic ways that people's lives may be benefited. For example, um, can somebody 
is somebody managing their diabetes through diet instead of pharmaceuticals? That's not something that's really considered. And that's very important because we know that obesity is the number one um, and increasing health risk in our uh, country at the time right now. And so we really need to be looking at these kind of multifactorial outcomes to see if people, to help people get healthier, not just sort of check things off of a box. Did you test this and did you test that? Well, thank you to Dr. Susan Levinson. She's an assistant professor of family medicine and integrative medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Breaking the silence around abuse takes both courage and a willingness to speak up, to get involved. I have two powerful poems whose authors do exactly that. First is Taylor de Blas's Nightmare, which shows us the terrible cost of not getting involved. Taylor is from Baltimore. Nightmare. Her car door opened like a broken jaw, and he threw her over his shoulder, and she beat his back with her stick fists. His grip was tight, and she could not see her mother, and it was broad daylight, and the strangers holding gas nozzles and sipping from coffee cups looked at her with nothing on their faces. And her waking terrors are not of the iron bones that caged her, not of his brute face or her own pale dangling feet, but indifference, as wide and deep as the Arizona canyon she set foot in at six years old, her white sneakers new on the world and her laces pulled tight. The second poem comes from Ithaca College student Vanessa Zimmerman. Here is Six Years. It has been six years and I can only remember your face with black bruises probably in the similar way you remember me voiceless. That is, if you remember me. You didn't back then. I, tucked behind pink plastic castles, flinching at every glass object you threw. He is throwing you across the room next. I know because your body bouncing against our uninsulated walls has become our house's wind chimes. I call him man which is to say that I have been trained to see every man as six-foot threats with long arms that reach to cover mouths, that swing to hit bodies until they are soft fruit. You blamed it on the tired every time. How even still I ponder the thought that you grew tired of your children, but never tired enough of your abuser. Mommy, did I call your name too often? I was six years old when you dragged me by pigtails down the green carpeted hallways, calling out for you to stop, please. Rug-burned body girl in power-puff girl pajamas lay before you like Mary Magdalene. This tear-droplet bastard child of a child. This mother is not really a mother. She is a battered addict. And I, Vanessa, am the naloxalone shot she never asked for.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, the dangers of vaping and the benefits of a plant-based diet. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.